Defendants March, Walsh, and Gaffney intentionally and knowingly provided false information in direct contravention to their duties and obligations under the law as public servants. Instead of serving and protecting all citizens of Chicago, the defendants tried to protect only one, Jason Van Dyke, by trying to create a false justification for the shooting of Laquan McDonald by Jason Van Dyke. They were doing their jobs on behalf of the public. McDonald was violating every law he could, he could possibly imagine that night. Prosecutors and defense attorneys gave their opening statements today in the trial of one current and two former Chicago police officers. They're charged with covering up details of Jason Van Dyke's shooting of Laquan McDonald. Before the trial began, a group of pastors held a press conference in the lobby of the Layton Criminal Court building. This court takes attention that we were not going to stand by and allow an unjust verdict to happen. This is bigger than Laquan. This is bigger than Chicago. This is happening all over the country. Police are covering up murders of young people. Blacks are being shot down on the street, and we will not stand for it any longer. And so we say together, we're here together united. From WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune, this is 16 Shots, the police shooting of Laquan McDonald. I'm Jen White. In this episode, we'll hear the highlights from the first day of the trial, and we'll explore the judge's close relationship with one of the defense attorneys. But first, Chip Mitchell was in the courtroom for us today. And Chip, what was the scene like? Well, Jen, this is Cook County's main criminal courthouse. It's a nearly 90-year-old building with these big, large, airy courtrooms, like the one where Jason Van Dyke was tried and found guilty of second-degree murder a couple months ago. And then, Jen, in the 70s, the county needed more courtrooms. Uh, so I'm just painting the scene here. They, so they squeezed in a bunch of small ones with low ceilings and carpeting. Um, they're circular, and there's thick glass separating spectators from the parties and the judge. So folks in the courthouse call these uh, the fishbowls. Now, this conspiracy trial, uh, a lot of legal experts and police oversight advocates think it's even more important than Van Dyke's trial, the murder trial, but it's not getting nearly as much media attention. And it's all taking place in one of these little fishbowl courtrooms. And there are actually a lot of seats to spare even. Now, prosecutors laid out their case today in opening statements. What did we hear and were there any surprises? Yeah, Special Prosecutor Patricia Brown Holmes. uh, She's a former federal prosecutor, a former state court judge. She talked a lot about police officers her team is planning to put on the witness stand. One of them is defendant Thomas Gaffney's partner, Joseph McGilligat. There's a video of McGilligat on foot trailing Laquan McDonald as Gaffney drove their squad car. Uh, This is the same car whose tire McDonald um, popped a few moments later. Um, The prosecutor, Patricia Brown-Holmes, she said McGilligat will testify he did not feel McDonald was seriously threatening anyone. Um, we heard similar testimony from him in Van Dyke's trial. So in this trial, he'll be important for laying out why the defendants allegedly felt a need to report falsely about the shooting. Now, Holmes, the prosecutor, she also talked a lot about those police reports, especially the ones filed by Gaffney, Van Dyke, and 
Van Dyke's partner, Joseph Walsh, he's another defendant, she said they had nearly identical claims that inflated the threat posed by McDonald before Van Dyke opened fire. The laws and general orders require justification in order to use deadly force. Immediately after the shooting of Laquan McDonald, the issue of justification became important. Those who are sworn to tell the truth began to fashion a story, to shape a narrative, to provide false information and create the lies that were designed to help Van Dyke avoid the consequences of his actions, to help Van Dyke avoid the punishment that might come with using deadly force without justification. Now, Jen, another witness that Patricia Brown Holmes, the prosecutor that she talked about today, is Officer Dora Fontaine. Fontaine has said in the past that Detective David March, the third defendant, that he attributed false statements to her. Holmes says Fontaine has faced reprisals inside the police department for what she's told investigators. Uh, she says this cop has been labeled a rat and that she's been told she wouldn't be safe on the streets. And Holmes pointed out March, the, uh, the detective, the defendant, that he concluded the shooting was justified and that he reported that all accounts by, by the officers were consistent with the infamous dash cam video. Now, each of the three officers on trial has at least one defense attorney of his own, and each of those attorneys also got to make an opening statement today. What are they saying? Their main point is that the prosecutors may not like how the officers did their paperwork after the shooting, but that doesn't mean there was a conspiracy or any crime at all. And the defense insisted that there was no evidence of an agreement to report falsely. And that's necessary. Uh, an agreement is basically what a conspiracy is. So one of the defendants, a lot of his claims were contradicted by the now infamous police dash cam video. His attorney said his reports about the shooting were simply based on his perceptions. And uh, Jen, like in the Van Dyke trial, um, it looks like a big factor is going to be race. Defense attorney Jim McKay blasted the prosecutor for mentioning in her opening that McDonald was a black teenager. Race has nothing to do with this case. It's about Laquan McDonald not following any laws that night. There must be some individual responsibility attached to McDonald. And, Jen, that's a lot of what the defense attorneys tried to do in their statements. They painted McDonald as a dangerous criminal who needed to be arrested and subdued. And they said the officers on trial were just doing their jobs. McDonald, still with knife on his person, begins to walk east. In comes Joe McGilligate and Tom Gaffney, uniformed Chicago police officers in a marked Chicago police SUV. They were doing their jobs that night. They were responding to a Citizens 9-1 call. McDonald needed to be arrested. That's what police do when they serve and protect the citizens of this city. And what happened next, Judge? Joe McGilligan has his gun out. Several times. I, I, I don't even know how many times Joe McGilligan is going to tell you how many times he ordered McDonald to stop and drop the knife. Never. Never did McDonald comply with those orders. McDonald, who Tom Gaffney has never met before, uses that knife to pop the tire on that police SUV. McDonald doesn't stop there. He takes that knife and he jams it into the windshield. 
That is violence, Your Honor. That is a violent act, Judge, that indicated to Tom Gaffney and Joe McElligot and every police officer out there on a police radio when they all hear, he just popped my tire, that this man, six feet, 185 pounds, with PCP running through his veins, this man will use that knife against even uniformed police officers. Chip, one last thing. Now, before the trial even got going this morning, the judge kicked out independent journalist Jamie Calvin from the courtroom. And we've talked to him for this podcast. It was actually his reporting that first drew attention to the 16 shots that Van Dyke fired and to the existence of the dash cam video that was still hidden from the public. And also to inconsistencies between police reports and a civilian witness's view of the shooting. Why was he removed from the courtroom? Well, Detective March's attorney said he may call Calvin as a witness. The judge, her name's Domenica Stevenson, she ordered Calvin out until she rules whether he has to testify. Now, Calvin had his own attorney there. He objected and pointed to a state law that protects journalists from having to reveal their sources. But Calvin did have to leave, so his attorney says he's putting together an emergency brief for an appeals court. Okay, Chip, thanks a lot. My pleasure, Jen. The case this week is not being heard by a jury. The defendants have chosen a bench trial where the judge will decide their guilt. Tribune reporter Jason Meisner has written a profile of Judge Dominica Stevenson, and he joins us now. Jason, you write that Judge Stevenson grew up in Kokomo, Indiana, and that's a small town in the middle of the state, about an hour north of Indianapolis. What was her childhood like? Uh, Stevenson was born to Italian immigrant parents. Uh, who had opened up a uh, pizza parlor in Kokomo in the late 1950s. It was called called Martino's Italian Villa. And that was pretty much her whole world. Like her her five siblings, she started working at the restaurant as as soon as she could reach the counter. Um, They would uh, go over to the restaurant during their lunch break and help uh, chop vegetables. And uh, the restaurant actually grew to be one of the most popular spots in Kokomo. And it is still going 50, 56 years later. What pulled her away from the family business? Uh, she wouldn't speak to us for this story, but she has given interviews before where she talked about how her parents instilled uh, a work ethic and, and told her that whatever career you choose, it has to be something that's exciting to you because it's going to be your job for the rest of your life. So while she enjoyed working in the restaurant, she was drawn to the big city. She wanted to go into law. She said she particularly liked criminal law because every day is different, and she found it interesting. Now, Judge Stevenson used to be a prosecutor, and you wrote about a case she handled that involved the murder of an activist. Tell us about that case. That was an activist named Arnold Morales. Uh, He was killed. It was a high-profile murder-for-hire case where a landlord who he had exposed on the south side as as running some uh, buildings that had code violations the landlord actually uh, orchestrated his murder, and three people were charged, including the landlord. And uh, uh, Judge Stevenson then was a, a young prosecutor in her mid-30s. She was teamed up with a veteran prosecutor named James McKay, and also the, the state's attorney at the time, her ultimate boss, uh, Dick Devine, uh, actually personally prosecuted that case. So she's worked closely with Jim McKay, and now McKay is arguing this case in front of her, he represents one of the defendants, one of the officers on trial. 
What kinds of conflicts does that present, and how was that handled in this case? Well, it's, it's not unusual uh, in a building like 26 in California, where a lot of the judges are former prosecutors. Um, it happens all the time where they're, they're on the bench and you know, arguing before them are, are people they either know or have worked with. So it's not unusual. Uh, in this case, it's, uh, it has raised some eyebrows because she is the trier of fact. It is a bench trial. There's no jury. So she's going to be rendering a decision um, uh, for a client uh, where the, you know, the, his, the client's lawyer is her friend and former colleague, Jim McKay. Uh, it's not unusual. As far as we know, the prosecutors uh, didn't object and did not raise any conflict uh, because they certainly could have if they wanted to. So um, it's, it's a situation that happens a lot at 26 in California. Is there anything out of the norm in the way this was handled? No, I think prosecutors probably looked at it and and um, decided not to raise any objections. This this case landed in front of Judge Stevenson almost by default because the first two judges either had to recuse themselves for conflict or uh, the second judge was actually, um, the prosec- prosecutors did uh, motion up a, a substitution of judge because they were not happy with uh, Judge Diane Cannon, who is known as a definitely a pro-police judge. So they, they filed what's known as a substitution of judge request and it was automatically kicked back for uh, selection again. And that's how it landed in front of Judge Stevenson. And how do people typically describe Judge Stevenson's style? She is known in the courthouse as very even-keeled, very low-key. Uh, anybody who watched the recent trial of of Jason Van Dyke and the Laquan McDonald shooting uh, saw Judge Vincent gone in his style, almost like a drill sergeant, yells a lot, tells lawyers to sit down, cuts them off. That She's the, the exact opposite. She's very quiet. Um, when she rules, it's in a very uh, low-key manner. She, she reads uh, from a written ruling, uh, or she cites the law. And she also lets attorneys argue, sometimes for hours. There was a hearing uh, a couple months ago where it lasted until almost 6 o'clock because she let the attorneys for each of the defendants and the prosecutors argue at length, whereas uh, uh, Judge Gone might have cut them off, certainly would have cut them off after certain amount of time. So that's her style. Jason Meisner is a reporter with the Chicago Tribune. Jason, thanks. Thank you. This trial isn't getting the same attention that Van Dyke's trial got, but several pastors were there today, and they say they're watching. And so we're going to be looking closely for a fair trial. We've already discovered, of course, that there is conflict with this judge in her previous relationship with one of the defense attorneys. And so we're going to be looking for justice to come in this case. In spite of those complications, we already know that a murder was committed. Sixteen Shots is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune. You can find out more about the case at wbez.org slash 16shots.
In the morning rush or the end-of-day hustle, find the news on the WBEZ mobile app. Catch up and stay informed on your schedule from wherever you are. Available now for Android or iOS.